Hey everyone, I am Farah Kimji and you are listening to the Futura Talks podcast. I believe the future will be built by those who see opportunity where others see uncertainty. It will be built by people that don't look like the traditional leaders of our past, but by women and individuals from diverse backgrounds that see the world differently and who are driven to make it better for all. This podcast will feature these people, self-made leaders and entrepreneurs that defy odds and are motivated to build a better future. We will also share practical advice for how you can unlock your full potential as the leader of your own Futura. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Futura Talks. Today, I'm joined by Fatima Zaidi, the founder and CEO at Quill Inc., an award-winning production agency specializing in corporate audio and co-host, a podcast growth and analytics tool. Fatima is an accomplished entrepreneur who speaks at various events around the world about media and tech trends, leading her to keynote on world stages alongside speakers like Gary Vaynerchuk. In addition to being a commentator for BNN Bloomberg on the challenges that female and BIPOC founders face in entrepreneurship, she is a frequent contributor to publications including The Globe and Mail and Huffington Post and has also been featured in publications like Forbes Inc., Business Insider, and Entrepreneur. Over the past few years, she has won two top 30 under 30 awards, the Young Professional of the Year by Notable Life, Vogue Clicquot's Bold Future Award, the Women in Content Marketing Award, and one of Flair Magazine's Top 100 Women. Outside of entrepreneurship, Fatima is co-chair of the Tech for Sick Kids Council for Sick Kids Hospital, which is the second largest pediatric research hospital in the world. She is on track to raise $25 million to build a new emergency wing of the hospital, as well as fund some of the world's biggest data and AI projects. Fatima, I am very excited to have the opportunity to sit down with you today and share your incredible journey with our audience. So let's dive in. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I mean, you know, you're a friend, we go way back and it's just um, really great to be able to sit across from you and congrats on all of the success you've had with your podcast so far. Thank you. And honestly, I'm so excited for this episode just because, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about podcasting as well. And, you know, you've been kind of the guru in this space for a long time. So really excited to dive into that. But before we do, I always like to, you know, chat with my guests a little bit about, you know, their upbringing and kind of what you were like as a child. So, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself, the young Fatima, maybe seven-year-old Fatima. (laughs) Uh, And did you always have entrepreneurial dreams even back then? I definitely didn't. It's really interesting when you look back at your life, you can really connect the dots um, uh, looking backwards and not forwards. I actually grew up in a small country in the Middle East called Oman. It's uh, for those listening who aren't sure where it is or if it sounds too much like Amman, Jordan. It's a small country between Yemen and the UAE. And so that's where actually I grew up. I was born and raised there and I grew up to Pakistani parents. And, you know, it's really interesting because my dad was a government worker and my mom's full-time job was like 
raising her three children and being an entrepreneur wasn't even on my radar. Like I didn't even think of it as a viable career path or it's something that I could do. And some days, you know, I really look at my life and I'm like, really, is this where I am? Like, this is, it's such a wild journey. But uh, when I turned 18, I moved to Toronto. I went to University of Toronto and I was never really a great student, full caveat. You know, even growing mm-hmm. up, I went to an international school. So in Oman, I was an expat, a third culture kid. And I was never the best student. I would say like the traditional teaching learning style that schools used to deploy back in the day was just like not conducive to my learning style. And so I was always like really mediocre. I think I've like really surprised my family and the people that I grew up with. I was like the wild card um, to where I am today. And I think that when I came to Toronto and and went through school and I was kind of on my own at 18, it was like, you know, financially responsible for myself. So I had to do a few jobs through school to put myself through U of T. And that really taught me a lot about work ethic and discipline and having to be really financially scrappy. Um, And eventually I ended up in sales, which is all about being financially savvy and scrappy and hustling and grit. So, you know, I think that my upbringing has definitely contributed to some of the entrepreneurial skills that I have, but um, I sort of fell into entrepreneurship and I'm so glad that now universities and institutions are putting more of an emphasis Mm -hmm. of, you know, entrepreneurship as a viable career journey, because back in the day, there was, there was no certificate you could take. There was, I think Babson College was the first school to actually do a course or a program or degree in entrepreneurship, but Mm -hmm. um, still pretty rare. Yeah, it's so interesting because definitely back then you you wouldn't graduate thinking, okay, I'm going to just be an entrepreneur. Whereas now it's almost kind of the norm of thinking I can come out of school and start a business or at least work for an entrepreneurial company and, and maybe getting a job at Google isn't like the end all be all anymore. <laughs> Right. Yeah, um, but I so how people so, want to work for Google or Spotify, <laughs> one of those massive conglomerates. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I like now that we both have this entrepreneurial, you know, bug in us, I don't think we can understand it. But back then, it really was the path you would take, right? Mm-hmm. Or even more traditional in my case of just, you know, going and be becoming a chartered accountant or something. So, mm-hmm. so did you actually come here then on your, like, you know, you said you came and you were at U of T. So did you come on your own or did your whole family come at, at that time as well? No, I came on my own. So my family was like still in the Middle East for like many, many years. Actually, it was only a few years ago um, when my dad became unwell that we decided to get my entire family to move to Canada just because the healthcare system is a lot better here. It's free, but it is still great doctors. But I did move here on my own. So I had to really find my way. And it was a very big culture shock as well. It was very different from the bubble that I was used to back in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Um, However, again, I think that it really taught taught me to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, figure things out, troubleshoot. Again, all of the qualities and characteristics of an entrepreneur. So yeah. And sometimes yeah. I, I mean, you had to do that out of necessity, but look at how it's really prepared you, right? Like it's quite amazing. And, and what did you study in school? So I studied business and HR, okay. and, yeah. which is so ironic because I think if I was to ever do an HR job today, I would be like fired day one. I'm like the least <laughs> diplomatic, politically correct person. Um, but at the time, because I was doing like three jobs um, through school, I just wanted to get a degree where like I could have like a decent GPA to keep my scholarship money coming in sure. and doing anything that I was like interested in that could be remotely difficult, like Rotman Commerce or, you know, law, which is something that I was like really interested 
interested in would just have been like too, too much work to support the financial work that I was also Mm. doing. So I was like, I'm just going to go in and out, get my university degree. And I actually started working full time before I even graduated. So my graduation was in July and I started my full time job in March. Oh, wow. Um, So I like had to finish school while I was working full time because I was always in that survivor mentality, you know, go, go, go. Honestly, like that grit that you had of kind of real life example of your own example of saying like, I got to make it if I'm here. And for you to have the foresight to say, look, if I was to go this path or this path, I don't think I'd be able to do both. What's interesting is, you know, sometimes that, that actual work experience combined with your degree for sure, but the work experience can teach you so much more than you can learn in in school, right? So I love that you kind of always had that. So you, you said you went, you know, kind of into sales was sort of your first start. Tell us a little bit of about, you know, those early days and then kind of leading up to you wanting to follow a path of entrepreneurship. Like, did you have examples around you of entrepreneurs or what really inspired you to to take that path and kind of move out of the corporate grind? So it was actually, um, my first couple of jobs were very corporate because I didn't know any better. And, um, one of the jobs that I worked at was Thomson Reuters. I didn't last very long there. It was like probably a year, um, before I got let go. And when I got let go, it was like a really, and anyone who's ever been fired or let go, it's like a really demoralizing experience. Like at the time it was just like, oh my goodness, my world has like come to an end. And I just had like absolutely no self-confidence and self-worth. And I was really determined to take that experience and turn it into something positive. And so I started, you know, obviously like there's no plan B. I was like still paying off some student debt. So I really needed a job. So I made it my full-time job. I actually canceled a trip with my sister to Peru, which I actually really regret in hindsight. And I ended up spending like every waking moment, just like networking with everybody I could, coffee meetings, applying for jobs, having conversations, like trying to get somebody to hire me. And I ended up having a conversation, a coffee conversation with like, who now is somebody who's such a good friend of mine. I'm an advisor for her company and she's an advisor for Quill. Her name's Erin Burry. She's the CEO of Willful. I think you've known her. Yeah, I I do. Yeah. Yeah. And so she said to me, she was like, you know, you have like the DNA of somebody who would do so, so well at a startup and you're scrappy and you're hustly and you have so much grit and you don't like inefficiencies or bureaucracy. And, you know, you have a problem with it, you know, like, you know, all of the things that I had a problem with were the issues in a corporate setting. And she's like, you do not strike me as someone that would thrive in a very structured process oriented environment where you do things just because that's the way it's done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she, she said to me, she's like, have you ever considered joining a startup? And the, the idea of it was just so mind boggling to me, but you know, I said to her, I said, I know I haven't ever thought about it because I, in my mind, had this connotation of startups being really risky, um, not having money, not paying the bills, you know, getting laid off and fired. And I just had come out of an experience. And she said something really interesting to me. She said, actually, 
I think that the opposite is true. I think in a startup, you can move up really quickly based mm-hmm. on your merit and you become indispensable to a company, which is 100% what I have found over time. The last decade of my career has exclusively been with, a, you know, either as an entrepreneur or at a startup. And I find that you are not just a number as you are in a corporate company where they will restructure overnight and remove full departments and they don't yeah. even know who they're laying off. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas at a startup, you become so indispensable and important to the culture. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So a few weeks later, she, someone she knew reached out to me and said there were two women who were starting a dress rental company. Uh, it was like the spinoff of Rent the Runway. Yeah. And they were looking for um, a salesperson who could come in and like expand them across Canada and also North America and the US and, you know, just bring in all of their revenue. And Eventually, I ended up taking that job and never really looked back. I've never gone back to corporate. I never wow. will go back to corporate. Um, did the startup stint for a couple of years. Erin actually ended up bringing me on um, to her agency to run sales. And then I left to launch um, my own company after that. So, Wow. Well, how fortunate for you to run into <laughs> her. And you know, the, it shows that like networking can sometimes really pay off because you never know who you're going to uh, meet or connect with. But for her to have that foresight for you that maybe you're not fitting into this box because the box wasn't designed for you and you're better off going and designing your own box or, or working for companies that, you know, think differently. And she saw that, right? And like, this is before, probably a little bit before, like you said for yourself, entrepreneurship was like a true path that you could follow or working for a startup was something that felt safe or secure or, you know, exciting. And it's it's interesting because I re- I've seen that as well. When you started a startup and you're maybe one of the first five five or 10 employees, they need you. <laughs> you know, those people need you to keep going, right? And so you do become a little bit indispensable. But what I think is even more important is the learning, right? Like mm. you, can, you can learn so much more in such a short period of time across many verticals mm-hmm. versus being sort of siloed in a department with hundreds or thousands of totally. people, right? Totally. And it, this is so telling because I think like anyone who's ever been laid off or is listening to this and takes it as like a, such a sign of like a, a hit on your personal self-worth. Two years after I got laid off, the same people who laid me off had purchased tickets to see me speak as a keynote at a conference. And right? it, it just goes to show that like, there's something for everyone and you sort of need to find your box, as you said. Um, yeah. And, you know, like there are, there are people who excel in the corporate space and want to come in and clock in and out and climb the corporate ladder. And that's great. There's yeah. imagine if all of us were like type A founders, I mean, the world would be a really, you know, difficult place, but I think that it, that's the beauty of like, you know, there's something for everyone. You really have to find um, mm-hmm. what matches your style. And it took me a little bit longer to get there. But once I got there, I was like, okay, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah. And I love that you share that because I think a lot of us have this idea that entrepreneurship is this like big, scary thing. It's only meant for certain people and that you need all of this experience and capital to be able to go out and start your business. And and reality is, is like, and, and that maybe it's safer and more comfortable to stay in corporate. But reality is, is maybe it's not for everyone, but 
I do think it's something that if you do have entrepreneurial dreams, that it's worth trying because there really is no safety or security, even in a corporate job, right? And <laughs> Especially in a corporate yeah, job. Yeah. And if anything, when you're the one designing your future and in charge of your future, you actually have, while it can be scary, you have a little bit more control about what that looks like. And it's a lot more fulfilling and we'll get into that, right? So I'd love to actually hear, so you're now, you've worked, you know, you, you started working kind of for some startups. We're doing that for a few years, end up working, you know, alongside Erin and her company for a bit. And then you went out and started, you know, Quill. So let's talk about Quill. I I know we're going to talk about co-hosts as well, but we'll start with Quill. And, you know, what really inspired the idea for this business and, and how did you get your start? So back when, when I was at 88, I just, you know, we were working with Fortune 500 brands to launch, you know, PR and content campaigns. And I just started noticing this like huge influx of people moving into the audio space. And, you know, I didn't even know what a podcast was until 2014 when, you know, Sarah Koning launched Serial and it became a household name. But I did notice a really interesting brand opportunity because you can be driving to work and listening to a podcast, but you can't be watching a Netflix show. You can be walking your dog and listening to a podcast, but you can't be reading an article. So it's like one of those few mediums that isn't available to traditional advertisers. So Mm -hmm. I saw a really big opportunity for brands to use it as a medium to reach their audiences. Um, It's also a global medium, which means that you're not prohibited by geographic boundaries. So really great opportunity to tell your brand story globally. Um, And then I would say that the biggest thing was there weren't a lot of players in the space. There's a ton Mm -hmm. of agencies doing PR and content and digital marketing and there's an agency for an agency, everything, Mm -hmm. but there was not a lot of agencies. And actually I would say there's still not a lot of agencies that are specializing in the corporate podcasting or really any podcasting space. And so I decided to productize our services and launch Quill and focus exclusively on corporate podcasts and um, podcast marketing. And while we were doing that for a few years, I mean, it's been a while now, but while we were doing that, working with clients like RBC, TD, um, Kids Hospital, Microsoft, Salesforce, those like our Expedia, those are the types of clients we work with. We started noticing a huge gap in the industry in terms of the data and analytics that we needed mm-hmm. to help brands understand the ROI of their podcast and then justify to their internal teams that we should create new production budgets. So I really tried to start finding all of this data. We like spend hours and hours putting together comprehensive analytics reports. And I would be knocking on all the data providers doors being like, we're a brand, not an indie content creator, not a network. We need XYZ information about the listener. And they just wouldn't give it Didn't to us. have it. Or they didn't have it. Either they didn't have it. They didn't care to invest time to find it. And it just became like so much of a process. We were constantly digging where I was like, okay, enough is enough. Let's just launch our own. And it, it was a huge undertaking because anyone who's launched a software product before, it's a lot of money. And we are a completely bootstrap company. We have zero investors on our cap table, but we made the difficult decision that we were going to take this revenue that we're making on the service side of the business to fund our product side of the business, because we really actually believe in making a difference in the industry as it pertains to analytics. And we feel like not a lot of people are innovating in this space. And so that's how co-host was, was born. Wow. 
Okay. So you just, you said a lot there and I want to unpack a little bit of it because I think this is really key for our listeners. What, what you did Fatima is you essentially said, look, I'm working at this company and I noticed there was an opportunity here or a gap to really leverage audio in a way that it hadn't been done before. And instead of just saying that you were like, let me be the one to, to go and, you know, solve that gap and start Quill and start helping brands, you know, you really leverage podcasting in their favor. Can you tell me about, you know, so you mentioned some of the clients, but what, what were some of the reasons why they wanted to use podcasting as a medium to reach their audience? And and what are the kinds of things that they kind of talk about on their podcast? Because that's obviously different than what, other kinds of media that they put out, right? Or content Mm -hmm. that they put out. Totally. I mean, I would say it's an opportunity for them to really tell their brand story in a very raw and vulnerable way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're really building a relationship with somebody. So it's not about the sales uh, and promotional aspects of your business. In fact, I would say that podcasting has the opportunity to really, really foster um, loyal connections. Like there's these huge brands that we see every day, Amazon, Google, Salesforce. And we think of them as like these big corporate products and brands. We know who they are, but we don't really have a loyal um, affinity to them. We don't really have some sort of a connection with them. We don't know what's happening behind closed doors, their brand story, how they came to be. And so this is a, it's a way to almost humanize that connection between you and your stakeholders. Um, It's interesting. I always tell this story. So um, we're all of us in our household love ice cream. We're like big ice cream consumers. And we never used to be like loyal to a particular type of ice cream. I would just go to the grocery store and buy what was like on sale or what I felt like eating that day. And Interestingly enough, I one day heard the podcast episode for Ben and Jerry. So yeah. Jerry, I think his Greenfield was, is his last Was it year. How I Built This episode? Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And after that, I was like, we are exclusively going to buy Ben and Jerry's <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's it. And it's like, I like love them and I love their story and I love how mission driven they are. Mm-hmm. And I would have never known that if I hadn't listened to their episode. Absolutely. You know what, what you, I actually think the, how I built this podcast is the podcast that inspired me most to start my podcast and to help tell stories of kind of the untold entrepreneurs. But what I loved about, you know, how I built this, it's all these brands that we somehow, you know, know and have grown to love or maybe not love. But once you hear the story, you're like, wow, that. Like it, it humanizes the product or the service for you. Um, it brings a whole other element. And I, I absolutely agree. It does build brand loyalty when you're like, oh, I know what that founder went through to be here and to start that business or the struggles that they had. Like it's, it's quite, um, it's quite a way to connect in a very authentic and vulnerable and real way. And that's actually, you know, what inspired me. So it's funny because I've heard that Ben and Jerry's episode. So I love that. So you, you, said, look, this is a great opportunity for brands to show another side of themselves and build loyalty and connect with their audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, you're now deep in it and you're like, okay, some of the companies I'm doing this for want these analytics and you're like, and it, they don't really exist or they're hard to get or companies aren't collecting them or they're not giving them to us. So we're just going to do this. But it, it, it takes a lot to go from seeing a problem in the space to being like I'm the one who's going to solve it and not just solve it. I'm going to build a whole tech platform in an industry where there's already kind of podcasting platforms, established mm-hmm. podcasting platforms. So tell us what, what, how you transitioned from, okay, here's a gap. 
I think we need to solve it. I think we actually need to start a whole podcast platform. That's a, that's a big, you know, journey that you went on. So I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. So I think that it's like really important to understand that both times before launching Quail and co-host, there was a period that we haven't really spoken about, which is like, I call it the imposter syndrome period where it's not as simple as I'm going to be the one to go in and do this. Mm -hmm. Like everybody has self-doubt. And I think that, you know, if I look at my network of women, we're always so afraid of being too promotional or too aggressive or too assertive. And I definitely had those thoughts of like, why me? And what if I fail? And um, do I have the right skill set to make this happen? And, you know, I, even today, there are days where I wake up and I'm like, am I doing a good job? Am I, am I a good CEO? And it's almost constantly looking for that external validation from people. And I think over time, I've just come to realize that we are CEOs of our own brand. And I think that the self-doubt is completely normal. And I think everybody faces it or should face it. It keeps you really grounded and humble, but at the same time, nobody else has more or less of a right to be doing exactly what you're doing. The difference is literally just going for it and then figuring it out and learning it on the job. Mm -hmm. I was not a podcasting expert when I launched a podcasting company. I am now a podcasting expert because of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. You spend enough time doing something, you will eventually become the master of it. But, you know, I think anybody has the ability to take a problem that they identify, whether or not they're an expert or not. And as long as you're passionate about it and want to make a difference, I think anybody can be an entrepreneur. Now, there are some baseline skill sets that you need, like hard work and grit and hustle. And it's not easy. Like there are days where you wake up and you're like rock bottom and every day is a new set of challenges. But, you know, you know, when they say with like, you're like, when you meet somebody that you like fall in love with, like you, when you just know, I don't know if I believe that in, I don't know if I believe that when it comes to love, like you just know, mm-hmm. but I believe that when it comes to being an entrepreneur, like yeah. <laughs> when you're in it, it's so hard. It's so difficult. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, but I would never want to do anything else. I just mm-hmm. know. Yeah. You know, I love that you said that because I felt that as soon as I decided to, to pursue the entrepreneurial path, there's never been a part of me that is looking back. Or, you know, if I get a recruiter that came to me in those early, you know, days and here's this job and I'm like, nope, not looking at job descriptions anymore. I'm creating my own, but it's this like love of being like, whatever it is that I do, I'm going to do it this way on my terms with the people who I want around me. I'm going to continually solve problems, which I think is what you're doing, which is what I, what I loved about what you said. You need the great, you need the hard work, all of this. I also would add probably just you need to have a willingness to continually learn. You need to be okay to fail. You need to be okay yeah. with hearing no, like every day, and then figuring out a way to to get it to a yes or, or you know, going another route. And I've seen you do that. You absolutely have the grit. So thanks for sharing that because I think a lot of people have this like um, romantic idea around entrepreneurship, but there is a lot that goes behind it. And, and most people think, oh, I, in order to build a tech platform, I need to be in tech and I need to have done it before. But the reality is you learn by doing it. That's actually how most people learn to talk. Let's, let's talk about that because, you know, some people come out and they're entrepreneurs, but they're not building tech platforms, which is a whole thing in it, in and of itself. Can you tell us what it was like 
you know, to go through that and what maybe surprised you about the process and what your biggest learning was around, you know, now building a tech platform versus sort of like, you know, what you were doing before in the early days of Quill. Yeah, definitely. I guess like my question to you is first and foremost, I'm curious, you don't have a co-founder, right? No, I don't. Yeah. Okay. So it's a really interesting experience because I think going through this journey with a co-founder and then going through the journey solo, like there are levels of entrepreneurships. And I think that the Mecca of entrepreneurs are the ones that do it on their own because it is such Mm a challenging, emotionally grueling and isolating experience that I have so much respect for um, female founders, especially who like decide to embark on this journey alone, because you are going to face a whole slew of challenges and you don't have that like better half that you can share the burden with. So I would say, I think I got really good because day one, I was like a solo founder and I got Mm -hmm. really good at identifying where my skills were not strong and where my gaps were and then outsourcing and finding people that I Mm -hmm. could trust to put in those roles. So yes, I'm not a technical person. I'm still not a technical person. I own a product company, a tech product company, um, a software that's doing really well. Our clients are Fortune 500 brands and my skill set is sales. It is not coding, it is not programming Mm -hmm. and it is not engineering. Uh, I hired a CTO for that and he's amazing and I trust him and, and, you know, he saw my vision and he helped me bring it to life. But I would say that it is physically impossible to be able to do all of the things that you need in your business to make it successful. Like you need a really strong operations person. You need a really strong CFO. Mm -hmm. Um, You really need a strong product person who can liaise with the development team. And you also need a really strong growth marketer. And I am none of those things, none of those things. So I just, you know, really invested in finding the right people. I was like really slow to hire. I acquired another company in the early days of Quill. And I basically brought on all three of the co-founders of that company. And now they're like my head of marketing, head of product, um, head of uh, product design and sound engineering. So Mm -hmm. I set the team up really well. And then I, from there, really invested in them. And to date, we're almost 25 employees and no one has left. So wow. That's that's so awesome. Like, I I think you've said something there, which is key is you don't have to do it all yourself and you don't have to do it alone and you can bring on the right people to help bring your vision to life. And so even if you don't know tech, if you know what you envision for your product and the company, you can bring on people to help build that. And there's lots of great people out there, but it's, it's hard. It can be challenging to find great people to work with you. So what are the things that you kind of have looked for in the team that you've built and that you've brought on? I would say the number one thing that I look for is, can I trust this person? Like trust is the most important thing to me. I don't care if you're not the smartest person. I like obviously being hardworking is important, but it's not the first thing that I look for. Mm -hmm. I like need to be able to know that you have like my back and the company's back and that you'll represent the company with integrity. Because if you have integrity as an employee, you are going to excel in most areas. You're going to be a a hard worker. You're going to be an overachiever. You're going to complete stuff on time. I don't have to micromanage manage you. Um, I know that the company will be represented well. So the number one thing that I look for is trust. And Mm -hmm. um, if even I get an inkling of whiff 
of not being able to fully count or rely on my employees and I wouldn't hire them. Yeah. Uh, So that's like probably the number one thing that I look for. And then honestly, from there, it's just um, representation really matters to me. So over time, I noticed that our company was looking very, like we're very diverse from a gender and ethnicity uh, standpoint, but I found that everybody was like an agency or startup person. So Mm. super scrappy and super hustly. And I was like, you know, I think we need to throw some corporate people into the mix because it yeah. really helped us to look at things differently and think about process and structure in a different way. And, you know, I don't want our culture to change, but I think that we can't just keep hiring the same type of people mm-hmm. who have worked at startups and agencies. Like it doesn't create a balanced team. I want people who are more introspective and slow. Uh, so I did add a couple of um, corporate people this year, and that's been a very interesting learning experience for me because it's a very different working style, you know, like mm-hmm. them, them being like, okay, we're going to put a one hour lunch in our calendar and we are going to, you know, just like really used to that, like slow methodical way of working. Like, you know, we've all done the corporate stint and um, that's been an interesting yeah. experience for me. Yeah. And I I love that you had that foresight of thinking about diversity beyond just, you know, what someone looks like or their gender, but also diversity of experience and background Mm -hmm. and type of company they've worked at, because it really, it helps to create balance within the team, I think as well. And to bring different perspectives is always great. Like you don't ever want groupthink or people who, you know, kind of do things the same way all the time. So kudos to you for thinking about diversity at that level as well. Um, and then I will say the trust piece. I've, I've learned that too. I've actually have tried to work with uh, a co-founder before and, you know, that trust piece kind of got broken before we got too far down the road. And it was a real learning and lesson for me that that who you choose to work beside you, alongside you to, you know, build out a vision is so key. It's, it's, it's just like choosing, you know, the person you're going to get married to, or, you know, Mm -hmm. be, be, have, be in a partnership with. And if anything, it's probably even more important than that because you're tying your finances together in a, in a way that's even probably beyond marriage. You know, you could get a prenup, but here you're, you're building a company out together, right? So, and you're spending a lot of time together. Your waking hours are spent with this person. So I I really think it's key to have the trust in, you know, whether it's a co-founder or the team that you, you bring on around you. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I really do look at co-founders where it does work. And I like really do envy that relationship because there are a lot of days where I'm like, I wish I had a partner that I could share the challenges with and and share the, you know, the day-to-day struggles with and also celebrate the milestones with. Um, But you know what? I think the other benefit of sometimes being a solo founder is the buck stops with you. You Mm -hmm. know who's in charge, which is like kind of nice where you don't have to sometimes... um, like I would say fight to get your way. And then Mm -hmm. I would say the other thing is I've had to learn to rely on my team in a very different way, Mm -hmm. but they've gotten to see a more um, emotional side or like the days that like things are tough. And I've like learned to lean on my team for that. And that has made them feel, and they are all stakeholders, at least the OG team, like they all Mm -hmm. have equity and shares in the company. Um, But 
I think that they then like when you rely on your team in that way, they get to feel like they're part of something much bigger rather than, you know, two founders off in the distance, yeah. making all the decisions and then like them being told what to do here. It's such a collaborative environment mm. where I need to rely on them day to day to help me make these decisions. And it's been kind of nice. Yeah. I mean, it's like your, you know, family in a sense, right? Like in a corporate sense or a professional sense, for mm-hmm. sure. You you mentioned in there challenges, right? What would you say are, have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced kind of personally as an entrepreneur and as well as, as a company? You know, I went from being like a salesperson, an individual contributor. And to be honest, like even in all of my previous roles, I was a manager, but like our KPIs were revenue. So I was very quantitatively focused. Whereas like Mm -hmm. in this role, I had to go from being an individual contributor in the early days to managing a team of 30 people. Mm -hmm. And I would say that like being a good manager and leader is a really, really hard task. So it's, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done because, you know, if you're really focused on retention, like I am, like, I don't want people to leave. It's a very expensive move for any startup to have to hire and replace people. And more importantly, I just want to see people here at the end, the same people that we have worked with from the early days. It's a journey. And so to making sure that every single employee in the team feels valued and heard and inspired and motivated and engaged, like that's really hard. And you know, I, all the entire leadership team reports to me and then they have people that report to them and just making sure that they are also managing people in a way that makes them feel like they belong and inclusive. And that to me is like really hard. It's Mm -hmm. like dealing with people all day long and having the people skills. And I'm a salesperson. I just want to be given a target and like go to the races and bring in the revenue. And now my job is making sure that people feel happy and satisfied in their jobs. And that's a lot of like human psychology and psyche and mm-hmm. championing. And, and that's just, you know, it's a new learning experience for me. And then, you know, to be a good leader in that regard, you have to be open to taking a lot of feedback. So, you know, yeah. being able to hear the difficult things or have the difficult conversations with like, you know, this is an area that needs work. And I'm just so used to being in jobs where your boss tells you what to do. And then that's just the way that it's yeah. done. Whereas like here, we're building a really different culture. And then, you know, every day is a new set of challenges, you know, in the service side of the business, you're dealing with clients all day on the product side, there's product bugs and servers and CDNs going down. So just like making sure that you are really like putting the right people in places where they can lead and run with their teams. And I would say that is always a learning process for me. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that because you've clearly thought it through and you're very like very thoughtful about the team you're building, how you're building it and how you're showing up as a leader. And I love that you were vulnerable enough to share like, look, this isn't my, like, I'm not the greatest at this, but I'm learning it as I go. Right. Cause you mm-hmm. haven't had to do that in the past, but honestly, what I feel like you're, you will learn and are learning in this role will set you up for life. Um, just even within the businesses that you're building the future businesses that you, you will build and just even, um, showing up as a, as a, a true leader, which you already are, but managing people is not easy. So kudos to you for trying to do it in a really thoughtful way. Um, yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about what you see as the future for, you know, both Quill and co-host. Yeah. So I, I'd like to, I say this 
quite often, which is like, you know, in the 1980s, your business had a phone number. In the 2000s, it was a website and then social media. And then, you know, now I think the next five to 10 years is the wave of audio. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, I think branded podcast companies are going to move more and more into the space of audio because everybody consumes content in different ways. And I think the really interesting stat that I would focus on is 93% of people who start a podcast episode will end up listening to the whole thing. And a 30 minute video only has a 12% completion rate. Mm. And it makes sense to me, Mm -hmm. like the flexibility of the format. Of how you can listen. Yeah, exactly. So you can be like listening to a podcast and be doing something else. And it actually increases engagement rather than hurts engagement. And asking for someone's undivided attention is a really tall order. And so I think the future of Quill and co host is really simultaneously creating really good content, but also connecting the dots and bridging the analytics and data to help brands understand the ROI of their show, who's listening to it, how they're listening to it, and how to continue to make audio content successful. There's a lot of podcasts out there, but we're very early in the hype cycle. There's 2.5 million podcasts, only 18% of them are active. So let's say half a million podcasts out there. Uh, If you compare that with other content mediums, there's 1.5 billion websites, 600 plus million blog channels, 30 million YouTube channels, 500 hours of content being uploaded every minute. So compared to that, we're like very new and very early. Well, that's good because, you know, I'm only on episode 16. So it's like nice to hear that you believe that the future of podcasting is like bright and it's not saturated and there's still so much uh, room for it to kind of grow and expand. I actually believe that it's one of my favorite mediums to listen to. um, And for that reason, but I think it's also because people are just a lot more vulnerable when they're in conversation, right? So especially when it's interview style podcast versus like even a video or more formal interview or recording a YouTube or something like even now, right? We're able to be so candid and vulnerable. And I think that's what allows audiences to really like connect and, and kind of feel like they know who's on the other side of that, even if they don't know the person, right? So I think people who are podcasting now, like similar to if you were the first person on Twitter in 2007, by default, you're an influencer today. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who is seriously podcasting today and will continue to put out new episodes and not make their show go inactive I think they'll be influencers in the next five years. Okay. So, like I think, I'm waiting for my little badge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I think the thing, yeah. I think the thing that's important is yeah. you need to realize podcasting is a marathon, not a sprint. Absolutely. Um, there's yeah. no instant gratification. It takes Joe Rogan years. podcasting for years and years before he blew up like years. And so, you know, the only reason he's so successful today, he sucks and his content sucks. His show sucks. <laughs> the only reason he's successful is because he's been doing it for so long. He's well. been doing it. Yeah. And he, yeah. he grew whatever audience he grew. Right. But I think, I think the thing for, for me too, is I think most people for the most part that I know, at least who start podcasts do it because they love it. Right. Like mm-hmm. I didn't start this to, to make money or, you know, I, I truly did it to tell the stories of untold entrepreneurs and get their, you know, and, and to aspire others who are trying to become entrepreneurs by those stories. Right. Like yeah. that's the, that's the reason for future talks and to, to talk to, to, to feature, you know, diverse leaders who are really building the future. So that's why I started this where it goes from here, who knows, but I absolutely see it as, as 
the long haul. So appreciate, you know, your insights because you obviously know this industry, you know, really well. I'd love to like you, you did you did mention, you know, some of the other mediums. Do you do you what do you see about how the podcast industry might change or evolve in the future? Like just if you had to predict something about the industry. I'd love to to hear your thoughts. So it's interesting because I think in the last couple of years, we've seen this big trend of people wanting to do vlog, like video podcasts. And I mm-hmm. think that that is going to significantly go down again, because I think um, we're finding that the engagement is yeah. just not there. Like it takes a lot of work to create a video podcast and it's not the same amount of views that you yeah. would get on audio content. So that's one. I think that that trend is eventually going to dwindle down and people are going to realize that podcasting should stick to audio formats because you're giving people flexibility of how they can listen to the content. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I think is going to start happening a lot more is um, using other channels to repurpose your content. So for example, um, transcribing your content and then uh, you know converting it into blogs and then maybe mm. repurposing some of the content for TikTok and yeah. for YouTube and for like other mediums so you can reach like it's not just a podcast on like the listening platforms it's like you can repurpose this content for other mediums yeah. and i think that not only is that really important to like repurpose content for accessibility purposes and otherwise but I think that everybody consumes content in a different way. And, you know, Gen Zers are obviously on Discord or TikTok. And I think more podcasters long-term start thinking about that. We're actually adding features on co-host that allow you to publish to those platforms. I love that. Yeah. What's so great that I've already seen with my the few episodes that I've done is the baseline interview that you record can you can then put that to YouTube. You can then, you know, slice it down to a small scale, you know, real. You can you can do audiograms, you can, like you said, transcribe it to a newsletter blog post. So so much that can be done once you have that kind of raw. Um, audio file. So I love that. I mean, it, the, the future is bright for podcasting, which is awesome. So, <laughs> you know, we, we have, we have chatted lots about your journey and, and about Quill and, and co-host. I, I'd love to, you know, as we kind of close out the episode, I'd love to hear if, you know, if you were to go back and start your entrepreneurial journey again, is there anything that you would do differently? Oh my goodness. That's a loaded question. <laughs> I feel like the answer is going to be no, there is nothing that I would do differently. And look, there are tons of mistakes that I have made. I can like, we would need an entire episode for me to go down and be like, here are all of the ways that I've like messed up and, and, you know, had I known better, but even out of those mistakes came like some really valuable learning opportunities. And it's a bit of a cliche statement, but, um, I wouldn't be the same person that I am today without some of those failures and mistakes Mm -hmm. that I made along the way. And even out of those mistakes, I can always think of like positives that have come out of it. And so I wouldn't really do anything differently because I feel like if I had done anything differently, it would be a completely different journey. Yeah. It wouldn't have turned out the same. I actually love that you said that because I, I actually did a two-part episode cause I couldn't get it into one on all the lessons I've learned from my failures. And they always were lessons. Like they were yeah. never truly failures. And you actually probably wouldn't have ended up like in this position without everything that happened before. 
right? hundred percent. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's called the midnight library. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like a really, it's like a really, it's like blowing up right now. It's like the number one New York times bestseller. And I'm like halfway through it right now. So I haven't finished okay. it, but yeah. it's basically about how um, your life would turn out if you had gone down a different path. Mm-hmm. Like right mm-hmm. now we have nothing to compare it to. Right. Yeah. Like we don't know if we had like not met our made that decision or, or not moved yeah. to Toronto or like, you know, yeah. gone to New York, which I was planning to do instead of like going to Toronto, like how and where my life would be. But we have no idea. We have nothing to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book is really interesting because it talks about um, what life would look like if you had went, opened another door um, mm-hmm. and at the ultimate like I, I, for, I haven't finished it, but I think what the ending is going to be, or the hypothesis, my hypothesis is that it, it all, like, it's all the same. Like you don't yeah. end up in the same place, but um, ultimately no path is like better or, or worse than the other. Like they all have positive um, connotations and also like negative things that happen to you along the way. So it all ends up almost being net zero. Yeah. Um, I haven't finished the book, so I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, but- well, it sounds interesting. Like I, I always liked that movie Sliding Doors, which is like yes. a little bit of this similar concept. But I think ultimately, if you're, you know, you may have a big vision for your life or you may feel like you're here for some sort of purpose, how it gets achieved might might be very different, right? Then you set out what you thought it might be. And there's so many paths to achieving it that let me, maybe ultimately we just do end up where we're supposed to end up. Right. So I was always really obsessed with this concept, even as a kid. Well, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the nightmare before Christmas, but when Jack, you know, opens up like the Christmas door, the Halloween door, and then you saw all the other doors like Easter. And, and I was like, what would have happened if he had opened up (laughs) the other door? Like they never made a sequel on like him going down another door. And I have always like, after watching that, movie been so fascinated with this concept of well like how different would your life look if you had made different choices and ultimately I've come to peace with the fact that I don't want to know I'm like on this journey this is the one yeah the one I'm going to make the most of it and I don't know where I'm going to end up and maybe there's another journey where I'd end up somewhere very differently but I don't like have anything to compare it to and I actually prefer that yeah and spending energy on the like what could have or what what if if right like it doesn't really get us ahead right so okay. with with that actually i'd love to hear if you have any advice for our listeners who may be considering you know their own entrepreneurial endeavors you know do you have any advice for them yes i would say number 1 advice is what we talked about earlier you know ditch the imposter syndrome remember mm-hmm. that you are ceos of your own brand and so take the plunge and then my second thing would be if you're going into entrepreneurship like you really have to embrace the uncertainty and the roller coaster um there are days where i sometimes am like really frustrated with where i'm at because i you know like for example i was just in vacation in scotland um for 10 days with my partner and i had to um work the entire time I was there like I obviously Mm -hmm. got to vacation but I also had to work every day and you know like looking at him sometimes where it's just like like completely disconnecting he's a government worker context Mm -hmm. so completely disconnected and you know not a worry in the world no stress like nobody's relying on him nobody cares about where he is and sometimes I wonder like oh like what that must be like but then I remind myself that this is the life that I have chosen I could go and get a corporate job somebody somewhere make 
ton of money and clock in and out, but that's not the life that I want. So you have to take the good with the bad. Like there are amazing, rewarding, gratifying reasons to being an entrepreneur, but it comes with a whole slew of crap and you have to go into it eyes wide open and accept it. Otherwise, if you're going to not appreciate the opportunity, it's going to be a really exhausting emotional journey. Yeah, I think that's actually great advice. And and what I sometimes do is I like think about the alternative. So like when I'm dealing with the crap as an entrepreneur, I'm like, but remember what it was like when you were in corporate and you had to deal with this boss or this coworker or this assignment you didn't really want to do or like that had its own set of problems. Yes, maybe it had the security and the health benefits, like whatever, but it didn't have all of this other stuff, right? So I think that's really good advice to, you know, just like believe in the path that you're on. Um, Okay. So this is the question that I like to end off with. And I ask everybody this, and I'm really excited to ask you because I like to ask people what they're listening to these days. And specifically (laughs) if there's any like audiobooks or podcasts that they're into. So I would love to hear, you know, your recommendations of what you're into. I have such a long list of podcasts. In fact, this is a question that I get asked all the time. So I actually have a list on my phone. Okay. Yeah. Pick your, pick your top three. Let's go with top three. So I listen to about 10 podcasts a week. I'm not even joking. Okay. You can give Um, me 10. It's all good. I'll give you three that I'm okay. Okay. Uh, I love the history of the nineties. Okay. Like if you're a nineties kid, it's like the funnest podcast. I love that. My favorite episode is the friends episode. So highly recommend that. Okay. Okay. Um, I really like this podcast called, um, gay future. Um, okay. it's, it's awesome. It's such a good show. I highly recommend reading, uh, listening to, listening to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously I love how I built this and by yeah. all and all of those like shows that like, you know, are so mainstream. Mm-hmm. The other podcast that I absolutely love is we regret to inform you. Hmm. It's a local Canadian show. It's done by Sydney O'Reilly. Who's like, um, a colleague of mine from like another job and okay see podcast so it's like similar to under the influence but every episode it's like a narration of an entrepreneur's journey so different from how I built this because it's not an interview it's a narration of their story mm, but I like that really well done so highly recommend listening to that and you'd be supporting local and Sydney is female identifying and we all know that there's very little representation in podcasting. So I try to veer away from the, how I built this reply all Mm -hmm. shows, because I'm just like, you know, the, the big million dollar production budgets and they belong to really big networks and it's always the same shows getting profiled. So I would recommend a future. We regret to inform you. And like some of those like more um, indie content creator content. That's awesome. I love that too. These days I'm really into like, women who have coaching businesses that have podcasts as well, where they talk about like mindset stuff and they're so under the radar, but like, that's where my jam is. But thank you for sharing that. Um, and lastly, as we close out, how can our listeners engage with you online? I'm on all of the social channels, except for TikTok. I refuse to go on there. Huh. So really you can just reach me on LinkedIn. Um, my handle across all channels is Sadie, my, my last name, the letter A, and then my first name. Um, so really I would say anywhere, like I'm pretty accessible, not hard to find and reach. And yeah, our website is quillpodcasting.com. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll add all of that to the show notes. And Fatima, thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure sitting down with you. I can't wait to see what happens with co-host. As you know, I'm migrating over. I hope many more of you, any of you podcasters listening also migrate over. And yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to sit across from you and uh, uh, really excited for this episode to drop. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Futura Talks. I hope it has left you inspired and motivated to pursue your dreams, find your calling, and follow your heart in your life and business. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much to me if you would consider leaving a review and better yet, sharing this episode with someone who will be inspired to start building their own Futura. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I will see you next week.